Today, I'm joined by the three-point conversions, Derek Worley. You know I had to bring my good friend back in for this one, for the uh, <laughs> Sugar Bowl rematch versus Clemson and Ohio State. Now, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence are familiar with one another. This they this is the second game they'll be playing against each other, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah, and they're it's almost like they're inseparable from the hip because I mean they both grew up in Georgia. I think they're only twenty miles away from each other in high school. So it seems like these two are always gonna be uh just talked about for a long time. So uh definitely something that we get them another time is definitely a privilege. Yeah, anytime you have one of, uh, well, two of college football's greats, <laughs> doesn't matter which, which team you're a fan of. It's just good football to watch. Absolutely. And uh, I remember uh, I saw it was, uh, it was almost criminal. So I saw a tweet last year when, well, actually, when all this coronavirus stuff was going on, that the possibility of Justin Fields only getting one season was criminal. And I'm, I'm glad that we got to see at least six now, possibly seven, as long as no, uh, no tests come up. So seven games at least. Is yes, privilege. <laughs> that would have been robbery on the highest accord. I mean, uh, I really would have. Uh, I don't know. It really just would have sucked if we wouldn't have gotten seen at least two seasons of him at, in that system. Given the production that he had in that first season, through under three interceptions, I believe. Right. And Lawrence, on the other hand, the uh, college football's golden boy right now. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, nothing against Lawrence. You know, I'm not going to bash on him because he is the presumptive number one overall pick. And Mm -hmm. we all now know that he's probably going to end up in Jacksonville, uh, more likely than not. Uh, but Fields and Lawrence are neck and neck when you talk about pure talent. They get it done in two different ways. And, uh, you know, Anybody who's listened to this podcast in the past knows that uh, I favor Fields over Lawrence, but I can't deny Lawrence's talent. So with that being said, you know, coming into this season, before all the cancellations, all the uncertainty, these two were destined to go head-to-head for the Heisman. Yep. We didn't get that, obviously. You know, we've gotten, what, Six games worth of tape on six more games worth of tape on Justin Fields, and we've gotten, uh, you know, is, is it eight now? Nine, I think. Yeah, it's gonna be maybe ten. Yeah, but so I mean, for for Lawrence, you know, he is out of the running. You know, he missed a couple of games this season due to a positive test, and you know that pretty much has put. What do they have? They have uh, Devontae Smith and. Mac Jones and whatnot in and the league. Kyle for the yeah, Kyle Trask too is in there. So yeah, so those two have been ruled out for the Heisman, but they are battling it out for the the real uh, the real gold this season, and that's the championship. Right, absolutely. And honestly, like if you were to tell them, like I think any player, especially uh, a lot of the four teams that are in the finals, like I'm pretty sure all those players would substitute the Heisman Trophy for a national championship. I know that that's that's how it is. I mean, we've seen our own back to Troy Smith, a Heisman award. Like I would have substituted Troy Smith, not winning a Heisman for us to actually compete against Florida and Teddy and not get hurt. So agreed uh, things like that. So I think the Heisman, especially like things that we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later uh, with, with the Heisman stuff, but it's just like the Heisman is just such a, it's just a weird award now. Like you look at some of the best performances and best players. Like if you were going to last year, I know this is kind of like, 
it's it's a little bit biased towards us, but Heisman's supposed to be the best player in college football. But also, you have like the Maxwell Award to the best player, and, and every year it's like a different player gets it. But if you're looking at some of the players that had like the most impact to the team and probably the best players, like you're looking at guys in college, like in Dawkins, Chase Young probably could have won it because I think he probably was the best player. He's well on his way to getting a rookie of the year for the defense, um, for the defense side of the ball. Uh, just things like that. It's just there's, the verbiage is dumb. The time to hand out the award is dumb. And then a lot of the analysts always talk about they have way too many voters, and they absolutely do. The vote for the Heisman should take place after the season, after the season's over. And I think like for the Heisman, you should probably consider it the best player on the best team. So like if Alabama was to win the title, you look at the best player, Clemson, obviously. But I just think the timing of it. You still have teams that have two more games, possibly, or well, you will have teams that have two more games. Like say. Say something happens with our uh, Mac Jones or Devontae Smith wins it, and then if something happens, they lose the Notre Dame. Like that's just going to be a bad look because yeah. they're going to be sitting at home, and then all of a sudden they're going to get invited to the award show because the Heisman gets handed out after the first game of the playoffs now for this season because of the timing. It's just it's just a weird look. I think that the Heisman, especially because it has its own award ceremony, it's not attached to the other things. And a lot of people have pushed for it. I really would like to see that award be pushed to the end of the postseason until the season's over. I completely agree. I mean, you would think with the timing of this season period, with the with uh, the pandemic, that they probably would have moved it to the end anyways. But uh, <laughs> I guess we didn't move in that direction. No, it's, it's just a weird time. But I'm going to get back on the track here. I know you wanted to talk about some Fields and Lawrence things, but – um, I know, I know how you've favored and how we viewed it, even though this season it's shown that Justin Fields is not Superman. He is, uh, he can be defeated in certain ways, but my, my thing is that a lot of Justin Fields struggles. I know I've talked to you about it, have to come with the scheme. It's a lot of late developing routes. It's a lot of things that are really out of his control. When Ohio state's running these max protect hard play action, only two route passes and the blitz comes and they don't pick it up in, in, in a way like it's hard to evaluate Justin Fields on those plays where it's a late developing pass and there's only two routes and he's basically told hey sell this play action sitting there what these routes develop pick one of the two and throw it and if it's not open like by the time the blitz gets there it, it just hasn't been on time and if you want to pick out his bad performances, which I still don't think Indiana was a bad performance. He just made two bad plays, still threw for 300 yards. The offense still went for 600 yards. Um, and then the Northwestern game, completely lacking chemistry. Julian Fleming is not Chris Olave, even though he is a number one prospect on ESPN's board. Great, five stars, good for him. But I don't care how talented he is. There's players that have, I mean, the chemistry if it's not there, it doesn't matter how good your talent is. It's just not the same. Same thing with Jameson Williams. Like when he bailed on that out route and took yeah. off, like it's just the chemistry isn't, it's not there. So I just think that if we're looking at like rating Justin Fields off of those two games, it's completely a loss because I, I know I sent it to you. He has 70% of his yards through the air. So if you're looking at stats and numbers, what you see is what you get versus Trevor Lawrence, who's, I wouldn't say hidden behind the scheme because he plays very effectively in the scheme, but it's going back to Taj Boyd and other quarterbacks that played in the same thing. The numbers are similar. It's just Trevor Lawrence is 6'6", 230, and has a better arm, but the scheme is still the same. It's get the ball to the playmakers quickly, 
run a lot of RPOs, a lot of stuff that would confuse the defense. And they have a lot of players. If you look at Justin Fields throwing deep balls, you have guys that are contested out there. When you have Trevor Lawrence throwing deep balls, there's five, 10 yards of separation. Like a lot of college players can make that throw, but Trevor Lawrence is doing it and he's supposed to. But you've seen Justin Fields make many more contested throws downfield than Trevor Lawrence. And if his biggest knack is not seeing the defense right away and locking in on one read, then I'm completely fine with it because my Browns have Baker Mayfield and he was the same way. He was completely the most accurate passer that came out in a long time that I had seen. And he was good at making plays with his feet and getting out of the pocket and moving. And Kevin Stefanski has now come in and utilized what he is good at. And that's what's going to happen with Justin Fields. Not very many people very few that have come out in the last decade or so have been able to throw the ball downfield effectively, 15 yards down the field effectively, hash to the other sideline, the deep outs, the deep comebacks. Like He can make all of those NFL throws. And, and if you just want to teach him how to run an offense, and that's the biggest feel that you have about him, the biggest problem, then I have literally no quorums. Cause- I think with Justin Fields, a lot of people are letting Ohio State's previous history with quarterbacks in the NFL cloud their judgment on just how high this guy's ceiling is. Right. Um, I mean, you, yes, it, we cannot deny, we can't sit here and deny that the last few, last few quarterbacks that have come out of OSU have not amounted to anything just yet. Although I right. think that with some maturity, Dwayne Haskins can become a serviceable I mean, starting right. level quarterback in the NFL and I'll, I'll say this too if if you take and this is what I've kind of said the last couple of days and seen it a little more J, or, uh, Dwayne Haskins is literally James Winston almost like copy and paste they both have incredible arms they both have uh, the ability to just zip it in there and but the thing is they take too many risks and they don't see the field enough and that's what the problem was with James Winston in the 30 for 30 club but um <laughs> That's what Dwayne Haskins has. I've seen Dwayne Haskins rip the ball, make these seam routes like that very few people in the league would make, uh, throw from any arm angle, things like that. It's just he just does not see the field. And if he gets with a quarterback's coach that can help him, and back to Baker Mayfield again, just because I've seen it, like rookie season was great, saw the field. Last year had no help in the quarterback room. Uh, Freddie Kitchens run a terrible offense. And back to this year, a good quarterback coach helping him see the field like that's the problem he had in Washington. You have Alex Smith, who's a longtime veteran, studied, probably uh, is one of the best at studying, I imagine, like the game plan, the preparation. Obviously, he went through hell and back to get back to the field. So, like, watching him succeed in the offense, like, okay, like, maybe it was Haskins, but also maybe Haskins didn't have the help that he needed to succeed because Alex Smith's been such a veteran for so long and knows what defenses are doing, and he's not going to get fooled at the line of scrimmage. And honestly, that's where the battle begins. Like mm-hmm. if you're not seeing it before the snap, then then you're not having a shot. And I think that if Dwayne Haskins can find himself a scheme or a place to be able to do that, and I keep telling myself I feel like New England is going to be a landing place for him, and it scares the crap out of me. And I've seen New England and, and Pittsburgh as two like yeah. possibilities, places that, that. that know how to coach a quarterback. So yeah, if anybody can get him together, it's one of Mike Tomlin or uh, Bill Belichick. So. You know, we know pretty much what we're going to get with Justin Fields. Right. He's pro-ready. On the other token, Trevor Lawrence, who do you think? I mean, do we really have a good pro-comp for Trevor at this point? Oh, not really. Honestly, it's just, like I said, it's hard to gauge these quarterbacks. That's why I've always 
shied away from these the RPO, the scheme like that. I know that Trevor Lawrence does throw the ball downfield, but like I said, the ACC as a whole, uh, I mean, even with DJ Uigalele in there, Clemson still put up 40-something points on Notre Dame. And then obviously they did it again. And like it, it's just hard to gauge – quarterbacks in this offense because I love what Taj Boyd did in that offense. He was one of my favorite players when he was at Clemson and he was deemed so like, like an afterthought just because of his size yeah. mm-hmm. and like Trevor Lawrence standing there at six foot six, two twenty, Like it's, it's really unparalleled comparison. I mean, honestly, if you're talking about the hype of him and just the, the aura of a Trevor Lawrence, you're looking at a comparison to Andrew Luck, I'd yep. say from, just the namesake. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, just because of all the intangibles are there, but I think looking at the, like the class as a whole, I think that I, I think each quarterback has their own little spot. Obviously I, I'm going to go off a little bit here. I think Kyle Trask has the best anticipation of any quarterback in this class. I think that, that Justin Fields pure athleticism is greater than any quarterback in this class. Uh, downfield passing is the best in the class, but Trevor Lawrence has like all he's a culmination. It's almost like you're playing like a, a game of Mario or something. You're going to pick Mario all around. This is what Trevor Lawrence is. He can do everything effectively. He doesn't do anything the greatest, he, like, but you know what you're going to get. He does everything well. And I think that that's why people view him over, over the uh, Justin Fields and everybody else. But it's just, uh, it's just hard to gauge. I mean, there's teams that it, – it's like, it's like Trevor Lawrence. Yes, he's a no-brainer, and yes, he's going to succeed. But if Justin Fields gets in the right system, he's going to be better than Trevor Lawrence. That's, that's what I'll leave it at. Good take, good take. Okay, so you take a look at last year's game, 29-23 Clemson. We all know mm-hmm. the end result. We all know right. that there was a miscommunication between Justin Fields and Chris Olave. That Chris won the game for them. But, I mean, Justin Fields in that game, 30 of 46, 320 yards, touchdowns, two costly interceptions. Yep. And Just, honestly, this is Brent Venables. I know that there's an article that came out the last couple of days, but that's that's more testament to Brent Venables' scheme on the first interception because no one thought Isaiah Simmons was going to take off and play the deep safety spot. And just obviously he was the best player in college football, I think, last year. But, um, but yeah, it's just it, obviously they were costly. But the thing is, it's an interesting storyline. Uh, is the guy that made the interception, Nolan Turner, he's not going to be in there for the first half. So, like, that's just something to follow. I think that that's pretty funny that, like, these people, everything's going to come back. It's going to meet, like, the play that completely defined the game. All the players are going to be back. The player that threw it, that intercepted it, that broke off the route. But one of them's going to be missing for the first half. So, I just think that that's so interesting. Agreed. So, I mean, we don't have a J.K. Dobbins on the roster, but we do have Trey Sermon, who pretty much carried us past Northwestern. Right. I'm hoping that he can fill a similar role to J.K. in this uh, in this Sugar Bowl, just because, I mean, you look at J.K. JK in that game. 18, he only had 18 carries, but almost rushed for 200 yards. Right. So impactful in a in a game where Justin Fields wasn't quite himself. I mean, again, he right. did have over 300 yards, but uh, like you said, Venables was able to play a great scheme against him in that game. And in another year in this system with yet another big-time receiver in Chris Olave, um, are you thinking that we're going to have a better shot at winning this game? Um. 
it just all depends on like a couple things. Obviously, it depends on whether or not Ryan Day wants to stick with the run game. Because I mean, I know you mentioned the numbers, but J.K. did get hurt for a little bit in that game last yeah. year, and then he wasn't as effective after those huge first first quarter carries. Um, but it's just Ohio State did not put their foot on the gas and they hammer them home like they had those empty possessions. Well, just came away with field goals. And it just blows my mind that, like, if, if you're looking at some of those misfortunes, like, there, there's, a, there's another play that people are really forgetting about. Uh, obviously, the, the, the fumble that was overruled, which blows my mind still because they just take away touchdowns from Jordan Fuller. That, that was my, my first take because he scored one against Michigan State. He mm-hmm. got called back for a complete bogus block call. And then this one. So Jordan Fuller just apparently they didn't want to give him touchdowns. Uh, but, but on the first possession of the game, like Garrett Wilson made that catch mm-hmm. and they ruled it dead. And Ohio State snapped it. J.K. was gone. He was scoring. There was nobody there. And they blew that play dead. And then they gave the ball to Ohio State at the, the inside the 10, wherever it was. But they got a field goal. But had they not blown that play dead and J.K. would have got the ball, there he was gone. I don't know if that's like something that you remember, but I remember them and they blew it dead. And the players were still playing, but he got to like the 10-yard line. And there was literally nobody around him blocking on the scheme, on the edge. And that just seemed to be like the all game long. It just... They just couldn't get enough. J.K. caught that one in the end zone. He was flying through the air. He stuck the ball over. And then instead of just after it reached across the plane, tucking it and landing, he held it out and landed, and the ball moved in his hands, even though we're all pretty sure he caught it. It's just a ton of misfortune. But, I mean, still, they didn't close it out, and I understand. Uh, but I think the targeting is still the one that gets talked about. John Wade. <laughs> For the end of time, that was literally like they, they everyone talks about. Oh, there's no such thing as momentum, but there absolutely is. It was third down. Ohio State was going to get the ball back. They could have easily been up sixteen to nothing at halftime, maybe even more. It was and that just completely killer. changed. Yeah. Yep, it changes the scheme of everything. But however, back to this year, I think that there's definitely keys for Ohio State, and I think the the first thing starts with the motivational factor. You have Dabo going off and on his tangent and doing crazy things, talking about oh, it's going to be easy to evaluate Ohio State because there's only six games of tape. However, Kirk Herbstreit said it best. This team hasn't even played 60 minutes yet, and that's what's scary, is if yeah. they can get their 60-minute football, you've seen what they can do. This is a, a force to be reckoned with. Obviously, Ohio State's recruited the best as anybody in the country and if they can just get their guys to go, and that's why I, I'm just going to go straight into it now for the X factors. I know we want to talk about it, but I think the offensive X factor is Josh Myers because obviously Brent Venables draws up all the stuff. We mentioned it, but if he can get the offensive line on the same page and get their mind right in pass protection, because that's where it is. Justin Fields has had one bad throw all season that was the one he sailed to Garrett Wilson against Indiana everything else has just been miscommunication and just forcing it if he can just when he's lined up to throw the ball if they can protect him Justin Fields like I said has had one bad throw where he wasn't trying to force it so let him see the field give him a vision and if he if they can do that then everything's going to be all right because I think that if you're looking at what they were able to do against Indiana and Northwestern yes like Clemson has better athletes. However, like I said, sometimes a scheme will just get somebody. And I think after seeing what Indiana and Northwestern were able to do, they were able to install some good stuff into the game plan and uh, hopefully uh, counter those blitzes that they're probably going to see. So that's for the offense. And I'll just go to the defense too um, for Clemson first. And then so we can carry this (laughs) this same side of the ball. Uh, For Clemson's defense, it's got to be James Skalski because – with that, with Turner being out, 
that's a big deal, I think. And he's missed a lot of time this season with targeting. I think he was a close contact or something. I, I remember he missed some time, maybe to an injury too. Uh, but this man is really good. He's got to keep the defensive line, and that's that's going to be where it starts. He's going to be the one that gets the call from Ben Venables on the sidelines. He has to play just as much as a game with Josh Myers and Justin Fields at the line of scrimmage to force confusion, and that's why I think the X factor is it's the same spot. Like You have center looking at linebacker, and that's where the game is going to be won, honestly. I think that on Ohio, if Ohio State's offense can move the ball, then I think we have something here, but if Ben, if Benables can outcoach Ryan Day, I don't think Ohio State has an absolute chance. So that's just that side. So, Okay, so tell me a little bit about the X factor on Clemson's offensive end. All right, so Clemson's offense, I think this is pretty pretty obvious. I know this is not really digging too much, but it's got to be Travis Etienne because last year Travis Etienne in the passing game was what separated the game for Ohio State and Clemson, which leads me to the defense. And I put two X-Factors for Ohio State, and that's both the defensive tackles, Tommy Togiai and Haskell Garrett, because these guys have been playing outside of their minds this season. And it's just a little bit different script, honestly, because if you're looking at what Ohio State's done in the past effectively, it's been the edge rushers from the Bosa's to Chase Young. But now you've got your strength of your defense is on the inside right now at the defensive tackle. I'm not saying Jonathan Cooper, Tyreek Smith, and Zach Harrison, and uh, Javante Jean-Baptiste, they're, they're rotational guys aren't as effective, but that is where the bread's going to be won. If they can force a problem for Clemson, it's coming right into the face of Trevor Lawrence and stopping Travis Etienne in the backfield, and then they're in business. So I think that that's, that's got to be where the matchup's won. A lot, a lot of yeah. offensive line, defensive line stuff, because I think the skill players speak for themselves. But I think if Ohio State's defensive tackles, especially the rest of the line, can get a push, I think that um, they can at least keep yeah, themselves in Yeah, I think this, this game, game is going to be won on the trenches and on both sides. Um, like you said, the skilled positions, we already know what each of these guys bring. Chris Olave, Travis Etienne, you know, both really good in last year's game. So we know what we're going to get, hopefully, on both ends from both of these two teams. Right. And, and another thing to look at, too, I know that this is a little bit different, but uh, Clemson's two starting corners from last year, uh, Trayvon Mullen and yep. A.J. Terrell, they're both gone. So you have a completely set different set of Clemson DBs that are trying to stop Ohio State. And I remember there was a big article that came out before the game last year, and everybody seemed to think that they knew that Clemson was just going to shut down Ohio State. But look at the numbers. Ohio State outgained Clemson mm-hmm. by 100 yards last year. And like it's not like Clemson moved the ball downfield. It was big play after big play after big play. All of their – like Trevor Lawrence's touchdown and Travis Etienne's touchdown, they had two touchdown plays of over 50 yards. And Ohio State moved the ball on Clemson almost all, all game last year. It's just they just came up short in the red zone, as we mentioned earlier. So uh, if they can eliminate those big plays, uh, it's just it's just going to be a different story. But like back to the receivers, like these, this is a challenge. This is going to be the best set of receivers that Clemson has seen all season. This is going to be the most talented team, regardless of how many games they've played. Like I know that that's the the thing, but Ohio State's yeah. going to bring it to Clemson. Obviously, last year I just remember that was walking away. Obviously, I was frustrated with the outcome, but. I don't think I had seen as hard of hitting of a football game in my lifetime since probably watching Ohio State and Michigan in 2002. Like that, I walked away saying, my goodness, like everybody was hitting people out there. And I think that it's just going to be even more this year because you have angry, angry yes, elves I mean, out there. <laughs> Pretty much. Like it's it, like it's just talking crap back and forth. 
And I know Armani Rogers, the Clemson wide receiver, came out and said that that they don't have beef with Ohio State; they have beef with us. Yeah, like, like saying that. that we don't care about them, and ugh, it's just not—it's not setting up for a good time. I think this pregame routine, this this stuff, is going to be wild. I think that there's probably going to be some some scrumming going on early in the game, but I just think that. Like if if you're looking at someone to prove a point, you're looking at Ohio State's front seven on defense to prove a point and basically help their secondary out. Like that's if I'm saying the game's going to be won, it's going to be won by the Ohio State front seven because I think the offense will have a plan. I think they'll put points on the board. I think that obviously Clemson will have a plan, but if Ohio State's front seven can come out and lay the wood and keep them in this football game, I think that that Ohio State has a good chance. Yeah, if they're not up for this game, they have no shot at winning the title. There's so much bulletin board material. There's right. Everybody on that front seven for Ohio State is an NFL player. Like literally both the D tackles I mentioned and the DNs I mentioned, their starting front four are going to be playing on Sundays. Pete Warner is going to be playing on Sundays. He's shot up the draft boards. He's probably going to be a second or maybe even third round pick. Uh, Baron Browning, same thing, shot up the draft boards. The, the weak link, honestly, is Tough Borland just because of the speed deficiency. But he's just like Skalski, like doesn't have the, the speed, but has the mindset, been a three time captain at Ohio State. Like he's going to get the guys in order. So I think that, like, this, this could be, like, obviously last year was good. I think that just from the motivational aspect of it, uh, obviously you hope Ohio State doesn't come out too pumped up and lose the edge, but I think that, that this is something that they've dreamed of. It, it, it's a little bit different of a script because Clemson's got that title under their belts with Lawrence. I think it's, it means a little bit different to them. Like Ohio State feels – Clemson doesn't feel like they stole the game. Ohio State feels like the game was ripped away. So I think that there's two different motivational aspects. Clemson thinks it's business as usual. Ohio State's pissed because they think that they they lost got this game stolen from us last year. So that that's where I think the the, the motivational yeah, aspect a lot is of, the key. Uh, disrespect has been thrown out there over these last few weeks from Clemson. We'll just we'll have to see how this turns out. You know, obviously, you know, we're hoping it pulls in favor of Ohio State, but we'll find out here shortly. Oh man. Right. I just have to address some of these rumors that I've heard. I don't know if they're you know, there's any truth to them, and I'm sure there's not because we hear rumors like this all the time. But more and more, they're starting to uh, they're starting to creep up. Urban Meyer to the NFL. Can you actually see that happening? Oh, dude, <laughs> it's everybody hoping for a Christmas miracle. I think, uh, but no, I I think if Urban Meyer goes one place, it'll be Dallas, just because the the backing of Dallas and how long they've stuck with inefficiencies with like Jason Garrett and all those years. I, I don't think that Urban Meyer would ever have a dream of coaching the Bengals. Um, just even though the Ohio roots, I don't think that that's something he would aspire, even though he'd have the opportunity to coach Joe Burrow if that was the case. But if you're looking at Urban Meyer to go anywhere in the NFL, I think Dallas is like the only option because like the backings there, Urban Meyer just, I feel like he would, like to be pasted the poster boy for America's team. Just, I think that'd be funny, but I just, I've never thought of Urban Meyer as an NFL coach. I've seen him always as a college coach, just because the aspect that he can do with the recruiting, the personality, just how people can relate to him. And, and he teach, I think he enjoys what he's instilled at the Ohio state's program. Cause Ryan day still does it. It's their, their real life Wednesdays. And I think, he would prefer molding young men mm. to become better men versus trying to deal with an NFL locker room. I just don't think that's yeah. his cup of tea. I think exactly. I think the 
motivational aspect where the young the young man is trying to figure out his life and, and getting a lot of his guys in order because the way he comes out and supports all his guys i remember last year he went to a washington game when terry mclaurin invited him to come watch him play like he i think just to grow the young guys and watch them go to the nfl and just say hey that's my product i can support all of these guys now instead of just support the 53-man locker room i think that that's something he aspires over uh, okay, I got to throw this out there, though. So we know the presumptive number one overall pick is going to be Trevor Lawrence going to Jacksonville. If the Jets mm-hmm. finish with the number two pick, is that already locked in? I'm not sure. It could be. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. They we'll, keep we'll winning. We'll <laughs> that is. But if they do end up getting in position right. to draft Justin Fields, you don't think that has a little bit of allure? Uh, I don't think so yeah i i don't know i just i don't see it i just don't see urban as a jets head coach just because like yes you could take over the jets and yes you have trevor lawrence but i know they've come out and won a lot of games or the last two or the last three but uh i just don't think that that's something that he would really care for just because like i said these the just watch the Jets fans are just as bad as the Knicks fans on draft night. Like, boo, they're boo, this, boo, I don't think that anybody really wants – I think that they would cheer it, but I just think there's so much to work Mm -hmm. on with the Jets. And just just look at the toxicity, I would say, just like how the whole Quinn Williams situation has been handled, Jamal Adams has been handled. Le'Veon Bell has been handled. I just don't think that that's a place that Urban Meyer would want to go. That's just toxic yeah, way to and, happen. Uh, sad to say that that could be definitely a possibility for Justin Fields. Yeah, I, I just – the more I think about it, the more I really like to the idea of Justin Fields to Atlanta. I think that would be the best place to him to go. I think Matt Ryan could really mold Justin Fields into being something great because, I mean – Yes, Atlanta's got the bad record, but Atlanta's offense has always been good. It seems like they'll find a way to blow it on the defensive side of the ball. But like, if you're looking at Atlanta mm-hmm. for a three-quarter football team, they're probably the best three-quarter football team in the whole NFL. Yeah. They just find they a way to blow it in the quarter. But uh, exactly, that's what I'm saying. And I think that I think Justin Fields very well because people are harping so hard on that Indian Northwestern game has might have played himself out of that spot, and maybe teams move up and want a more – all-around player like Zach Wilson, and somebody might move up and try to take a chance with Trey Lance because of how Josh Allen has has elevated his game because I see those two as very similar prospects. Um, but I think the ideal spot for Justin Fields to go is Atlanta just because it's going to be homecoming for him, and I think that that's a system where he can really learn to grow. And you got Todd Gurley there now. You've got, you, I've got a bunch of ton of good playmakers. Atlanta's got studs all around, so I think that a good place to go, sit for a year, uh, and then develop, learn under Matt Ryan, one of the best. I, I'd say that Matt Ryan's probably one of the top-tier quarterbacks that we've seen. Just such, such a long tenure, such good play over a long period of time. Him and Matt Stafford both, I'd say. Uh, so learn from one of the best to do it. Definitely the best in terms of stats-wise for the Atlanta franchise. Uh, not taking away anything from Mike Vick, but just as a pure Oh, absolutely. Yes, Michael Vick was electrifying, but Matt Ryan – you know, personifies what it means to be a pro-level quarterback. Uh, very talented, not given a lot to work with at this point in time in regards to the defense <laughs> that backs him, but he can still right. get it done offensively. 
which which brings us to another thing too. I know we didn't say it, but maybe I said Dallas, but maybe if Justin Fields goes to Atlanta, maybe that might be something to it to lure Urban Meyer. I don't see him as a Falcon guy, but that could be something different because there's a lot more pieces to work with in Atlanta than there is in New York. All right, gotcha. man. So who do you think is going to win the Heisman this year? I know that Fields and Lawrence are out of the running. I know that you know that we have a ton of other really good options, and this is going to actually be the first year that a wide receiver wins it. Uh, so who do you think is going to win? I think Devontae Smith should win the Heisman. I know we didn't say it, but if we're talking, like, I think that in terms of what he's done, I think that that's the best player in the country in terms of stats per position. I think that Devontae Smith deserves to win the Heisman. Obviously, he got the AP Player of the Year, so he's not going to go shortchanged. Thanks for dropping by, man. It's always good to talk college football with you. Make sure you guys check out Derek on the Three Point Conversions Facebook page. He's already written quite a few articles, very well versed in the realm of college football. I'll go ahead and drop a link to that in the description as well. And you guys have a good day.